1796. There is just something about a person who looks for opportunity wherever they can find it, even when there appears to be less than expected. For a young general climbing his way into prominence, it could have been discouraging to be placed in charge of chasing Austrians into Italy. Within the war of the First Coalition, most of the fighting had been done in Flanders and Germany. But at 26, Napoleon is now the head of the French army in Italy, and his men adore him. He took an existing structure, the French army, and began surrounding himself with people who were talented in those roles, versus those who were born, into a system based on nepotism. It would be Paul Barat the Directory, the current French government sitting firmly in place of the former Committee of Public Safety, who placed Napoleon in this crucial role. This caused giggles and whispers. Everyone, everyone knew that Josephine had been sexually involved with Barat before she married Napoleon. Was he throwing him this post out of pity, or was he just truly that talented of a soldier? After all, Napoleon was the man who ran the British out of Toulon and, and who crushed a royalist uprising in Paris. Italy didn't start as the most influential theater in the War of the First Coalition, but it would be Napoleon who made it that way, taking the resources he had and quite literally changing the map, using the sword of his army to slice through and separate his enemy, picking them off one by one. From there, he would lead his troops into one of the biggest victories of his career, but with that success came power and a sip from that chalice can tempt any man. The invasion of Italy was initially the side quest of this war, the First Coalition, but it turned into the main narrative and its leader, the main character. It would give Napoleon his first taste of being a statesman, and in the years that follow, he would chase no other high more than that. It's just the beginning, but it's also the beginning of the end. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte, Episode 2. In the last episode, we bounced around a bit in Napoleon's relationship with Josephine, their whirlwind marriage, and their love letters and her subsequent affair with Hippolyte Charles. For now, we must pause there. The wedding was hastily done, and Napoleon, lovesick, was headed out to the Italian front. Italy is, in 1796, made up of multiple kingdoms. Northern Italy is held by the Austrians, and the Austrians, in addition to wanting to pluck the resources they could from France and expand its power, were also avenging something. In a sense, Marie Antoinette. When her head had been removed by the guillotine, Marie Antoinette died the queen of France. But she had been born Austrian. Her nephew now sat on the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. The what? In high school, my history teacher talked about the Holy Roman Empire a whole lot, and when we got confused, Mrs. Sloan would hit that ever-beloved quote that we all know. The Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. So what is it exactly? Well, it's a combination, to oversimplify, or a polity of Germany, Austria, Bohemia, which we presently call the Czech Republic, Moravia, and parts of Switzerland, the Netherlands, and northern Italy for good measure. 
When you're thinking of world history, it's always a good idea to never take the maps you have in your mind presently and apply them as maps have constantly changed throughout history, especially now that Napoleon is involved. The present day countries we know now likely did not exist as you know them now, and Napoleon will be a primary reason for many a shift of border and many a change in the maps. Now, that being said, before we get into the details of the Italian campaign, let me first reiterate that I am not a military historian by any means. Now, there are multiple podcast recommendations I can give you. The first one I can think of being the age of Napoleon. It is fantastic. And that's going to go into the sort of hyper detail of troop movements that you might not find here. As this is more a story of the man himself and not his military record, but keep that in mind going forward. Was the Italian campaign perfect? No, Napoleon would actually suffer his very first loss as a leader here. Sometimes military success is just bouncing back very successfully after a loss. And in the beginning, Napoleon found himself outnumbered. On April 2nd, he led an army forward into northern Italy, 38,000 soldiers strong, facing 38,000 Austrians, which would sound like an even match, except for the fact the Austrians had 25,000 allies in the Piedmontese. Napoleon knew the best course of action was to separate the Austrians and Piedmontese and knock them out individually. Dividing and conquering is something you're going to see Napoleon do repeatedly. That and bombard people with artillery. It's his two favorite things, probably after sleeping with his wife. But that being said... Dividing and conquering simply meant weakening the enemy. So Napoleon took his 38,000 troops and began spreading them out in the mountainous terrain. One thing he had emphasized amongst the men was a need for endurance and covering a lot of ground daily. The physical fitness of the French easily overtook that of the Piedmontese, beaten in two weeks at Montenote and Mordovi. That ended in the surrender of the Piedmontese in two weeks. He took them out. And there, in that first victory, Napoleon did something that would endear him to the Frenchmen forever. With his victory, Napoleon demanded gold and silver and then turned that around, giving it to his soldiers, the vast majority of whom had not been paid in ages. It really was that easy. With the Piedmontese on the run, it was now time to focus his attention on the Austrians, and they did so in a small village called Lodi. Lodi sits at the southeast of Milan, on the right bank of the Adda River. The Battle of Lodi in and of itself was fairly minor, but it would bring a lot of attention to the future emperor. Northern Italy hadn't even been the focus of the wars of the First Coalition. The Austrian army was on the retreat crossing the Adda River, and Napoleon set his sights on Lodi as the pathway to get to Milan, the crown jewel that he wanted. And so Napoleon and his men crossed the bridge into a hell of fire from the Austrians. The rear guard was trying to hold the Lodi bridge, but the French continued forward. The Austrian fire was causing confusion, but Napoleon ordered his infantry forward, pulling in his artillery once more to blast Austrian guns across the river. And then the front line began picking off as many men as they could with their bayonets. This isn't what you would call a clean victory as the French lost nearly a thousand men out of 5,000. But the Austrians lost twice that amount and a good majority of their artillery. 
the arrival of the French cavalry, as the battle heated up didn't help the Austrian cause in the slightest, and the French were victorious. Reinforcements, especially from the cavalry, are going to make or break Napoleon's career from here on out. And as his fellow generals watched, this incredibly young leader, it is reported that one general looked at another, the quote never attributed to a known source, but he is reported to have looked over and said, I don't know why, but that little bastard scares the hell out of me. Now, we do know that Austria's Jean-Pierre Beaulieu did manage to escape, but that didn't stop the celebration. And from this point forward, the loyalty of Napoleon's men would stick with him for the rest of his life. He would be embraced by soldiers and protected, and they elected to give him the affectionate nickname, the Little Corporal. And all he had to do was win and pay his men. That's it. Now, as for that moniker, the Little Corporal, before anyone starts to bring up his height, it is time to address those rumors. The conversation surrounding Napoleon's height is one of those oft-debated subjects in history. The origin of the so-called Napoleon complex finds its footing in a lot of British propaganda, as well as a misunderstanding of measurement units utilized in this time period. Most biographers point out that the pre-metric system Pousse had Napoleon listed as 5'2 or 5 pits, 2 pouces. That is really hard to say without a French accent, but a pouce is 2.7 centimeters. So in reality, 5'2", by that time standard, means Napoleon stood at roughly an average 5'6 to 5'7, maybe 5'8 on a good day, or if he was wearing his best pair of Ron DeSantis shoes. What this means is that Napoleon was the living embodiment of the phrase, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. But for that time period, he was pretty much just an average Joe. But back to the Italian campaign. Within five days, his soldiers were marching into Milan with eyes toward Mantua. On the 15th of May, the Italian French troops made their way into the city and immediately Napoleon decided to set about luring in Italy as part of France's republic, giving the future emperor his first taste of power in statehood. Selecting Italian Jacobins, Napoleon helped draft a constitution for his sister republic, and there he continued his love amongst his troops as he used his position there to wrangle 20 million francs to once again pay his soldiers. It should not be this easy. In the meantime, the French soldiers were plundering the city, taking back precious works of art with them. Bonaparte paid little mind as he turned his attention forward to Mantua and Beaulieu, who was holed in amongst his men. On the way out of Milan, rebels tried to push back against Napoleon, but those who fought against the French were destroyed, their villages sacked. It was a warning. Do not go against the French Republic. It will not end well for you. Napoleon's sights were now set to the heavily fortified Mantua. Mantua was one of four fortresses guarding the Alps. Napoleon's objective was to starve the Austrians out, but it was a move that would require patience. Napoleon's troops created a blockade around the garrison at Mantua for months, with only two very brief reposes. The early arrival on July 4th, 1796, by one of Napoleon's generals, was not enough to sack the city entirely. 
The scouts estimated that the Austrians had roughly three months worth of food stacked in the fortifications. General Serrouillet decided he was just going to wait them out, let them starve. So the blockade began. By the 18th, Serrouillet began bombing the Austrians with an estimated 12,000 shells. Shock and awe, if you will. The message was clear. Either surrender, be shelled, or starve to death. Your choice. However, despite the circumstances, the Austrians were not willing to go down without a fight. And the French weren't really able to mount a attack or siege as the Austrians pushed back, so it was sort of a stalemate. In the sense that the Austrians were slowing down the progress made by the French who were trying to get everyone out of the fort. This siege would drag on for seven months and four times the Austrians would attempt to break it. And two of those Austrian attempts would be major events in the career of Napoleon Bonaparte. The Battle of Arcole and the Battle of Rivoli. The Battle of Arcole was fought between the 15th of November and the 17th of November. 16 miles southeast of Verona during this first war of the coalition. Now, Napoleon outflanked the Austrians to cut off its lines of retreat, and there was nowhere to go effectively stopping the Austrians. Weeks later would see another attempt by Joseph Alvinci to bring his troops forward at Rivoli. Remember, these sudden surges in military activity were meant to help the people who were trapped in the fortifications, and Napoleon's job was to keep them back. It's terribly oversimplified, but that should give you a better idea. In Rivoli, Napoleon found himself outnumbered. Austrian reinforcements led by Alvinci and others knew they couldn't let any more time pass, and Napoleon suspiciously realized he wasn't sure where they were going to hit the French. The scouts didn't see the Austrian army, and he then got word that his troops had been sacked at Rivoli in a surprise hit. Well, he just couldn't let that stand. So from around Mantua, Napoleon gathered 22,000 men to take with him to Rivoli and ordered the rest to remain behind at the fortification. Arriving stealthily in the dark of night, Napoleon's scouts determined he would need to take a hold of San Marco and the Osteria Gorge. In the overnight hours following lots of analysis, Napoleon did a bit of calculus. He knew he would need to put his best generals on the field. That was always his secret. And they are the unsung heroes of the French army. Alvinci had attempted to split and surround the French, and though the man had proven to be a very worthy opponent for Bonaparte, Napoleon would apply his favorite method, spreading his enemies paper thin across the terrain. And from there, just like he did with the Piedmontese, he plucked them off one by one. The Italian campaign was not without its tragic losses for Bonaparte. His horse was shot out from underneath him, his aide-de-camp killed. But by the end of the Battle of Rivoli, it is said that the French lost 5,000 men. The Austrians lost 14,000. It was the final straw that won Napoleon Mantua and its starving citizens. On February 2nd, Mantua surrendered with its garrison of 16,000 men. And all that remained was an army of 30,000. His soldiers were thrilled. They all knew that meant they were getting paid once more. But not everyone was thrilled about Napoleon's meteoric rise to the top. Other generals began to grow wary of the man who was coming up in the ranks far too quickly. 
Though his successes were astounding, many were concerned about this young man in his mid-twenties coming up too quickly, too fast. They liked their station in the military and weren't ready for it to be threatened by the little corporal. But for all his power and success, Napoleon remained slightly distracted and focused elsewhere. You can guess where. He had been begging his wife to come to Italy. She had her reasons not for coming, she wrote. Initially, she told him she was pregnant and he was ecstatic, thinking he was going to be a father when he returned after this long haul in Italy. It was a straight lie. Josephine wanted to stay in Paris. She was happy with her friends, happy having money to spend on herself and her children. She enjoyed going to parties and cared little about what anyone thought about her or her behavior. Paul Barov, the directory, the French government that was currently in place, would urge Josephine to go to her husband. Remember, Barov was Josephine's former lover himself. Her husband's neediness was just never attractive to her. Besides, she was very happy with her lover, Hippolyte Charles, who was known for being good-natured, handsome, and for being good in the sack. Sorry, there is no other way to explain it. Josephine really enjoyed her time with him. But in the midst of his battles, Napoleon longed for his wife to be close by. There is a well-known story, though. Some say this letter is urban legend at best, or at worst, it's British propaganda. Some historians say Napoleon crudely asked Josephine to come down and, quote, not to wash for three days so he could take in her natural odors. While I am not here to yuck anyone's yum, it should be noted that both Napoleon and Josephine were particular about being clean. That acknowledgement being said, the vibe does fit Napoleon's increasingly filthy feelings about his wife. Napoleon liked sleeping with Josephine. At the end of the day, we all know this is true. This woman had something about her that made men lose their minds. In July 1796, in the midst of all these well-fought battles, Josephine did eventually acquiesce and come to see her husband. You can imagine his joy. Oh, but it would be short-lived. You see, on her way to Milan, Josephine had decided to secretly sneak someone else along the journey. Her lover, Hippolyte Charles. Once Napoleon realizes he's been made a cuckold, the power dynamic in the relationship, the marriage between Napoleon and Josephine is going to shift dramatically. God's Favorites is a semi-bi-weekly podcast. Sometimes, yes, but close enough this time around. And right before I take a birthday trip to Corsica to see the birthplace of one Mr. Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm very excited about this trip. If you don't already follow my TikTok account over at Melissa Fairlady, uh, come on over. I'm going to be doing a lot of content uh, in France, not about Napoleon, but other things. Uh, I'll mostly be in the South region uh, for my birthday, and I'm really excited about this trip. So uh, come on over there, subscribe, and we'll see what we get into. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the Patreon with a monthly donation. Uh, what we use that money for, of course, is streaming costs, using uh, music services that does cost money, and you don't want to get sued. And other things such as getting around paywalls and books. Uh, when we cite the sources today, go out and support the authors of these things that I'm using. 
at the end of the day, I may be telling the story, but they're the ones who have done the legwork for me. Napoleon Bonaparte's first campaign by Herbert Sargent. That's on Amazon Cloud Kindle for five bucks right now. Go get it. It's a great book. The Italian campaign articles on worldhistory.org and napoleon.org. Napoleon Alive by Andrew Roberts. And believe me, I know, I know that this podcast series was timed perfectly for the release of the Ridley Scott Napoleon movie. Uh, Let me just tell you, don't, don't watch it. If you value your time, that three hours you could spend, I don't know, taking a nap or reading a book on the toilet, uh, that would be time better spent, I think, personally. That's just me, but don't do it, don't do it. It doesn't work even with suspension of disbelief. And that's sad because I love Joaquin, but anyway... All right, guys, that's the end of the show. Next time, we are going to see the pyramids as we tag along with our leader to Egypt. We'll see you next time, friends.